This lecture is going to be a summary of the church's social teaching. So I ask you to read the, a couple of those pages in advance. Um, a large amount of what we're doing today is just going to be reading block quotes of texts. So today's lecture on one sense might not feel that interesting. Next lecture, kind of in compensation, we're going to do a lot of application of that in a particular example of um, formulating civil laws. Uh, and your paper is going to be the particular example of that with respect to a civil law on same-sex marriage. Which is a. The, that's the last paper of this oh, course. Right. Yeah. So I'm just offering that as compensation for the fact today's lecture might seem like we're just pushing through a lot of stuff. Um, so we're summarizing. So today, social teaching. The church's social teaching. What is the foundation, the goal? The person. Not the individual. So the modern world talks about the individual, uh, a very privatized view of what you are as a human being. The church uses this word, the person. And the social teaching of the church, that is its foundation and its goal. What are you as a person? Uh, you are in the image of God. He is triune and he is personal. Um, Triune, so there's a community that you are in the image. There is a nest, a grouping of relationship that you are in the image of. The common good of society. So you Trump voting Republican uh, right-wing extremists that characterize this seminary, we need to be clear that uh, the church talks about the common good of society. Uh, and that doesn't make you a communist. The common good uh, is different from being communist. So the common good exists and is, what, what is it? Well, it's it fosters the person. It fosters lots of little groups, like your Cub Scout group, your parish group, your brownies, your... Um, all of the, the common good of society has lots of little groups that it supports, and those little groups foster the good of the person. The common good of society fosters the church among the other groups it fosters, which likewise, the church, it, one of the things it's ordered to is the flourishing of the person.
what makes the common good of society or causes it to flourish? Well, um, participation. So when the members of society participate, get involved, that causes the common good to flourish. We're going to note particularly this thing called the state exists in order that there is one body in particular that has the sole function of protecting, promoting, fostering the common good of society. We're going to note that the primordial, basic, primary unit of society is the family that fosters the common good. And then also note that while the common good supports the church, the church supports, promotes, fosters the common good. Now, what do we mean by the common good? So, a common good, what do we mean? You know, in general, when we talk about a good, we're meaning kind of a thing that's strived for, that is achieved. So, farming has the good of food that's produced by the activity of farming. The common good, there's some thing, some good that is produced, achieved. So the common good, or any common good, is a good achieved together. that we cannot achieve alone. And this is a weird way of phrasing it, it might seem, but God is a common good of the church. So all the members of the church, you know, we're all built for God, we're all striving for God. You cannot achieve God alone. The common good of the church ultimately is God. We achieve God together. We can't alone. That is the function of the church, to enable us to achieve God. It's also a common good, a thing that is held by the group. together. 
held in the sense of possessed, owned. A good held by the, a good held by the group, not the good. It's a good thing somebody's paying attention. So the group holds this good, as well as that good being something that can only be achieved by a group. You can't achieve it alone. That's why it's a common good. So a woman cannot achieve the good of a child alone. At a very minimal level, at least, she needs another to enable her to achieve that good. And much more broadly, there are all kinds of goods that we can truly achieve, but we achieve them with others. These are common goods. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that you as a person need a common good of society to support you to foster your flourishing. So we're going to note that the common good of society is ordered to the person. So says the Catechism. And we're going to note three essential properties that characterize the common good. Respect, prosperity, prosperity, and peace and security. Is ordered to God? To, is ordered to the person. The common good of society, what's it about? is ordered to the flourishing of the person. And the flourishing of all the different groups that make up the society that are ordered to the flourishing of the person. And the Essential properties? Properties, yeah. Respect, prosperity, and peace and security. Does a society have a healthy common good? Is it prosperous? Is it secure? Is it peaceful? Do its members respect each other? When that's the case, you have a healthy common good that is then ordered to successfully the person. Catechism also says the ultimate end of society is the person. All the structures we have in society, all the things, what is it all aimed towards? The flourishing of the person.
Okay, the state. What is the state? What's its purpose? Well, positively, um, it exists to promote and defend the common good. That's its function. If it's doing something that isn't ordered to that, it has moved beyond its function. It is in some sense in a state of tyranny. Its function is to promote this common good. And while a state, a government, has many different forms in human history, its function is always about the common good of that society. And it is measured by whether it serves the common good. That in summary is what we're looking at today. A one lecture summary, the social teaching of the church. Its ultimate end, everything, the person, his dignity, his flourishing. He can't do it alone because he's not alone. He's made in the image of a communal, personal, relational God. The common good of society enables his flourishing. He also has to participate in society in order that that common good flourishes. The state is ordered to the common good of society. The family is the primordial unit. The church both serves the common good and is served by it. to the good so like ethics would be the individual state would be politics and family I think it was economics or something that seems like that this is like a continuation more on, on a ecclesial level uh, or fulfilled uh, level so it was a question but it was kind of a, a statement okay good so much truth in Aristotle um but we're going to hope that Jesus has even more <laughs> and that actually you're going to learn something in this that isn't in Aristotle. Right, like he didn't include church. 
uh, and his notion of God is very abstract, impersonal. So his notion of where it's all heading, uh, it's amazing Aristotle knew as much as he did. It really is amazing. Um, okay, lecture notes. Starting on page one. So I, I start by noting what I call our modern or American problem with the issues in today's lecture. So today we're considering a number of issues where it can be difficult to be a Catholic first and an American second. Are you American Catholics, whereby your primary identity is Catholic and you're only secondarily American, or are you Catholic Americans, so that your primary identity is national? American and only secondarily, well, yeah, I am Catholic. We want to be Catholic first. But I say America's crowning glory is that she's not just a tribe or a race, but a model to the world. So the phrase in Matthew's gospel, a city upon a hill, has been often quoted in your American history um, as what America is to be to the world, a model of how all the world can look to, not just as that place over there, but a way that they too can cease to, to build their society. A model, I say, of freedom, democracy. It's an idea, a way of life. I say, but being American can be a religion more important to its adherents than being Catholic. So we need to be wary of that. Yes, be proud of being American. Yes, seek to be the best America even America's vision of itself is not perfect. The Catholic faith is the vision of perfection, that we seek every nation, every culture to conform to that. Um, even, is, if, even if, I think it is a reasonable claim, America is the closest incarnation to that that has yet been seen on the face of the earth. Okay. Say so today we will consider community, society, and government. And I say two factors make it difficult to view this objectively. First, American libertarianism, which views all governments as at best a necessary evil. I say, but in reality, the redcoats are coming is a rather outdated concern. Yeah, they haven't been coming for quite a while. And yet that is still a defining part of the American psyche. Um, Second, I note more recently, 20th century communism has given us many horrific examples of evil governments. And I say, but government as a concept should not be judged on the basis of abuses of it. And 21st century fears of an LGBTQ plus agenda driven governments opposing Catholic institutions is likewise not a basis for opposing all governments. Quote Ronald Reagan, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, I say these words stand as a judgment on excessive government interference in people's lives. These words do not stand as a suitable Catholic comment on all government activity. Okay, see what I'm trying to articulate here before we start talking about government, to be aware in ourselves, we have this prejudice of somehow feeling all government is wrong. All government is just a necessary evil. All taxation is theft. Um, 
These are very common American thoughts. Um, and because we hear these thoughts said by people who are opposing our enemy, and those people are out to get us, so to speak, the other people, um, it can cloud our Catholic ability to understand this. So government is not a necessary evil in Catholic thought. Government has a proper function. Taxation, therefore, is not a necessary evil. Taxation is, as a concept, right and proper. Okay, page two. This page, trying to just briefly map out how does the catechism approach this whole topic. And I say the structure of the catechism has an emphasis on community. I said we previously noted earlier in this course, the first chapter of the first section of the catechism's portrayal of the moral life, what we're looking at in this course, focused on human dignity. Brother Adam, can you read that quote from the catechism? Christian, Christians. Is it, is it talking to the Christian? Okay. Christian, okay. recognize your dignity and now that you share in God's nature. Okay. So the dignity of the person being there. Next quote. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God. So where are we starting? Human dignity. I say the second chapter of this first section, which is where we're now looking in the catechism, builds on this, that God is trinity, i.e. inherently communitarian. Man in this image is likewise inherently communal. So that God's vocation, man's vocation to beatitude is personal, but also includes the whole human community. You don't get to God alone. Say so a personal vocation, not an individualistic vocation. Contrary to the Protestant approach, it's not me and my Jesus. Yeah. Michael, can you read the next catechism quote for us? Actually, this isn't quote from the catechism. This is from the editor of the catechism commenting on it. The, the social communal dimension of man is an inseparable element of morality. The catechism treats a person and society, authority, the common good, responsibility and participation. Social justice and solidarity in close reliance upon Gaudiumet Spes and the social teaching of the church. Okay, and I then say three articles in this chapter that we're looking at in the Catechism develop this theme. The first article, the person and society, with the communal character of the human vocation and how conversion and society go together. Secondly, participation in social life, how that relates to authority, the common good, and where responsibility and participation fits in that. And then thirdly, social justice, what you need respect for the human person, equality and differences among men, and human solidarity. So that's the structure of this part of the catechism that we're looking at. Now, how are we going to focus within that framework? So we're going to focus on the significance of the common good. Uh, we're going to notice the role of government, of participation in democracy, and the family. 
Uh, and I note that so social justice is part of this. We're going to come back to social justice later in this course where the catechism likewise is going to elaborate on it. So that's, we're not abandoning it, we're just going to look at it later in the course. So clear where we're going here? Okay, page three. As I say, we are going to move through this briefly, quickly. Our next lecture will play with some of the specifics in a way that will be a bit more interesting. So, page three, the structure of society. What is society structured on? Well, I start by noting two things that are contrary ideas. See, contrary to radical libertarianism, the church teaches that man is essentially social and there is a proper role for government. But, contrary to communism, the other extreme, the church teaches that the individual has a value distinct from the collective, that it isn't only the collective that matters, and that the government has a limited and specific role, rather than somehow kind of the government, the state, being everything, and you kind of being a, a nothing that is merely there to serve it. So, what does the catechism say? Uh, and hopefully you've read all these bits in your reading, but just structurally. First, the dignity of the human person. And I say this is the basis of all Catholic social doctrine. So, Jake, can you read the first bullet points? The, cat the person? The person represents the ultimate end of society, which is ordered to him. Now, do we see that as a big claim, saying what is society about is ordered to the person? And this is not what Stalin and Mao Zedong and whatever were saying, that you can crush over a thousand of your um, citizens to the goal of, of the, the communist ideal. No, the, what does it exist for society? The person. And I say the basis of that human dignity is, Michael? Created in the image of the one God and equally endowed with rational souls. All men have the same nature and the same origin. And Hunter, could you read the next one? Respect for the human person proceeds by way of respect for the principle that everyone should look upon his neighbor without any exception as another self, above all bearing in mind his life and the means necessary for living in his dignity. Now, here's a significant clarification. Dignity of everyone does not mean everyone is the same, that there are differences. Um, among us. Uh, Francisco, can you read the quote line there? The difference among persons belongs to God's plan, who wills that we should need one another. This difference should encourage charity. I say, i.e., differences in wages, differences in power, are not inherently evil. Though such differences can become evil when the weaker are left to suffer. So the an egalitarianism, but not a, I, everyone being identical, is, is the church's vision here. Equal dignity, but not identical. So the fact that Elon Musk has more money than me 
is not inherently problematic. The fact that he has billions of billions, there is a question at what stage is there a distribution of wealth where others are left in poverty? That is not a question that the church's teaching would be comfortable with just kind of leaving there and saying, yeah, that's fine. How you work beyond that is a more difficult question. Okay, but back to my notes here. The common good. What is the common good? Uh, Michael, can you read the first quote from the Catechism? The common good is to be understood the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or, individual, or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Okay, so you as a person, you need certain things in order to flourish, in order to be fulfilled. What are those things that you need? The common good should somehow make all those things possible. What are the essential elements of it? Francisco, can you read those to us? The common good consists of three essential elements. Respect for, for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person. Prosperity of the development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society, the peace and security of the groups and of its members. Okay, so if, you're, if your nation does not have security, you cannot flourish there because you're about to be invaded and trampled over by somebody else. If you are all in poverty, you cannot be flourishing. Um, if you do not respect each other, you cannot be flourishing. These are kind of the basic things by which we would measure is the common good here healthy or not. But the common good is not an end in itself. It is ordered to something else. Uh, Brother Adam, can you read that one for us? The common good of society is not an end in itself. It has value only in reference to attaining the ultimate ends of the person and the universal common good of the whole of creation. Okay, let's go over the page now. Page four. What's the difference between common good of society and the universal common good? Where are we? In that, in that same quote that Father just read. Common good. There is a distinction between common good of society and the universal common good of the whole creation. Uh, well, so this society has a common good. Oh, right. There's a universal common good of all humanity, all creation. Yeah, so every group, every nation is a, has a community of a good of its own. Um, who's responsible for that common good? Over the page, page four. Um, and here, lots of bullet points quoting the catechism. Hunter, first one, please. The common good, therefore, involves all members of a society no one is exempt from cooperating according to each one's possibilities in attaining it and developing it. Uh, Francisco, next one. The responsibility of attaining the, the common good besides failing to, uh, failing to individual persons belong also to the state, since the common good is the reason that the political authorities exist. So who is, has a duty to promote the common good? You as individuals, but in particular, 
the state, the government. So as I put in bold there, the next quote from the Catechism, it's the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society, its citizens, and its intermediate bodies. The nation. Uh, so this kind of, with Michael's thing about the universal common good, but a particular common good. I said, no, and quoting the Catechism, patriotism, this is part of the fourth commandment to honor one's parents, that love and service of one's country follow from the duty of gratitude and belong to the order of charity. Again, it can be a, a different type of individualism, libertarianism to somehow see the nation means nothing to me. Uh, this town means nothing to me. Um, it should mean something to you. You have a duty beyond yourself. And not just to the universal that is kind of meaningless, but these people here, these are my people. Um, famous poem on love of country. Breathes there a man with soul so dead who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. Uh, we should all have some sense, the, this is my place, these are my people. Um, which doesn't mean I'm saying they're perfect, that they're sinless, that there aren't things they need to improve on, but these are my people. In the same way that with my family, they're my family. So in, in modern states where there's a lot of disjointed communities that are combined, especially here in America where it's 50 different states with a lot of different cultural shifts. Could the application of that patriotism be more to the state than to the whole? Or does it have to be the country? Like yeah, well, I mean... Because, <laughs> I mean, I assume that, um, yeah, right. so like, Wales you could probably not like the UK if you're from Wales and still like being from Wales. Yeah, so uh, particularly when you're talking to a Welshman. Uh, so, um, yes is the, the straight, simple answer. Saying you should love where you're from doesn't determine that that's not somehow changeable. So it is of the nature of a community and of a nation to change its boundaries, to shift uh, over time. So that isn't an utterly static thing. Um, likewise, the balance between a local community and the bigger community, um, patriotism can be more focused on one or the other. There's a general principle about which the church does not have an exact blueprint. This is what society looks like. It has very important principles that guide us that we should always hold firm to in any particular party policy we've got. But the church gives those principles and says, um, so I've lost my train of thought, that it's kind of part of a false ideology to think you can map out human existence in some kind of scientific, this is the only way you can be. The only perfect society is heaven.
Yeah. And it seems like you would like love your family more than you would love your city, more than you would love your right. state, more than you would love your like in our case we're in the United States. Yeah. Like yeah. Again the southerner saying we should love the state more than the federal <laughs> government. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying no, no, I'm, uh, yes, 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 I think so. Just on the principles of... No, no, d d we're, we're going to call the principle of subsidiarity we're going to come on to. Okay. Um, so, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, but lots of people from a broken family hate their family. And often I've seen that unhappiness with their family goes with an unhappiness with their town, with an unhappiness with, I hate my country. Um, people genuinely feel that way. That's not a healthy way to feel. Okay, the need for government, therefore. Um, I think I've already packed this out um, in a number of things. So as I put in bold there, every human community needs authority in order to endure and develop. Um, the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society. But one of the things I say, government as authority derives its authority from God, for there is nowhere else authority can legitimately be derived. So um, Romans is quoted in the Catechism, there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So one of the things we point to to our government and say, you cannot do that because you only have authority in as much as it is from God. If what you are saying is contrary to God, you're contradicting your very self. Um, but Catholic doctrine permits many diverse forms of government as long as they serve the common good. Michael, can you read the next quote? If authority belongs authority belongs to the order established by God, the choice of the political regime, and the appointment of rulers are left to the free decision of the citizens. The diversity of political regimes is morally acceptable, provided they serve the legitimate good of the communities that adopt them. Okay, we'll comment about democracy directly in a minute, but um, broadly speaking, the government's okay, the church is okay with a benign dictator, the good prince, or with a democratic elected system, the measure for both of them is are they fostering the common good? That is the purpose of the government. Is it fostering the common good? One of the things that does seem to imply something of a more favorable view of democracy is the question of participation, which has had a lot of attention in church social teaching this past century or so. So I say, the Catechism does not mention democracy. The Catechism speaks of participation, while noting, as I quote from the Catechism, the manner of this participation may vary from one country or culture to another. So the goal is the advancement of the common good, not participation per se. Um, what is participation? Participation is the voluntary and generous engagement of a person in social interchange. It is necessary that all participate, each according to his position and role in promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. 
Participation is achieved, first of all, by taking charge of the areas for which one assumes personal responsibility, by the care taken for the education of his family, by conscientious work, and so forth. By these, man participates in the good of others and of society. So you can't have a common good if people aren't all participating. But participation isn't the goal in itself, it's the fostering of the common good that is the goal. Page 5, I asked you to read yourselves in advance. So, uh, democracy and the church. So there's a quote there from John Paul II in Chantismus Annus about the, the church values the democratic system in as much as it ensures participation of citizens. So there is, in church teaching, in an encyclical, a very positive statement about democracy. But what's the section of democracy in the catechism? There is no section on democracy in the catechism, which you might think is a good American. Um, the church's social teaching, where's democracy in here? Where's democracy in here? It's not there. Social teaching talks about participation. Sorry, Michael, you had your hand up. Um, so how can one participate in a government that, where something like democracy is not valued? In the case of like the good king, who is like a, a good tyrant, basically. Good dictator. Good so dictator. we use the word tyrant. Yeah. yeah. Is um, so a dictator rules by diktat. What he says goes. But if everything he says is about the good of others, he's not a tyrant. Mm -hmm. um, so on the previous page there, taking charge of your work, your family, and so forth, that is participation even if you don't get a vote in society. So the revolution was unjustified. And we're going to come on to that question later in the course. I'm going to leave it as an open question for now. <laughs> um, when we look at just war, and with that, the question of a just revolution, um, you need serious grounds for a just revolution. Um, just complaining about the tax rate on tea. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there is more to it. Throw a little more to that. But <laughs> that was almost all of it. <laughs> but does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, so. Because I think in the American mind, participation means I have the right to vote. Right. But that's not what the church is saying. That's not what the church is saying. And the church does, as in this encyclical, say in various places the democratic system does seem to foster that but democracy isn't valued as an end in itself it's only valued as a way of enabling participation and thus fostering the common good and thus the flourishing of the person and as we'll note in our next lecture when the democratic system actually enacts laws that end up undermining the flourishing of the person, then yes, it's democracy, but democracy is not the goal. 
the flourishing of the person, the flourishing of the common good that the person might flourish, that's the goal. The church. Okay, so that's a brief thing on democracy there. The church. Um, so, again, as Americans, you can be so used to the thought that separation of church and state. Um, now, as I quoted from, there's this big document book called The Compendium of Social Doctrine. Um, it makes the observation that this notion of church and state being distinct is actually a Catholic notion. It's one of the achievements of Catholicism. The kind of primitive societies, the priest, the ruler, were, if not the same person, so hand in hand that they weren't separated. To have the king and the bishop distinct, with distinct roles, ordered towards each other. So the bishop teaching how to live is the structure of what the king should be doing. But the king has a whole set of responsibilities that the bishop just cannot tell him to, what to do. The bishop cannot say, the road should go there, not over there. That's not the bishop's role. Um, distinct roles, not an opposition, but in distinction. Um, the um, integralist Catholic position, if you follow certain social media, Twitter accounts, um, where we're striving to get back the confessional state, um, Confessional states, where the state itself, the government, confesses the faith. Constantine, most of Christendom, it was that was the structure. Um, the king was anointed. Uh, so, the only place I think where that still happens in Europe is where there's a bishop who isn't really a bishop because he's an Anglican but uh, anointed um, very recently, as we saw on television, the current king of England. Um, but you said they weren't European. Dang it, yeah, <laughs> okay, that caught out there. Uh, yeah, okay, uh, and you're moving swiftly on. Um, okay, but the confessional state, the church kind of anointed the in a ceremony, the king uh, kind of chose him. The king likewise, or reciprocally, confessed the faith. This faith, anybody else will not be tolerated. How that looked varied um, in more subtle forms, more explicitly through the 20th century. The church promoting the human dignity, promoting therefore freedom of conscience, um, how can the state confess a religion while still giving dignity to members of the society that don't hold the same? That's a, a complicated thing that we're not going to do in this course. Okay, page six. Subsidiarity. 
So this relates to the question of should I support my state or should I support the federal government or should I support my little county uh, or my town um, subsidiarity? What is meant by this? Brother Adam, can you read the first line? Excessive intervention by the state can threaten personal freedom and initiative. The teaching of the church has elaborated the principle of subsidiarity according to which a community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. Okay, so the federal government should not interfere with the state government except in those things where the state government needs its support. Uh, the state government should not interfere with the town government except in those things where the town government can't do it alone. So the town needs a road that connects it to other towns. It therefore needs the state government. Likewise, you know, some roads just being one example some of a need for a higher level of government also a need for government full stop. Who's going to decide the road's going to go there and not there? You're a group of individuals. You need some communal interaction, the state to be the way that happens so that it's determined that we're going to put the road here. It could be there, but we're going to put it here. Okay, but subsidiarity, you don't interfere with a lower if the lower can do its job without you interfering. And it says here, certain societies such as the family and state correspond more directly to the nature of man and are necessary to him. So the family in particular should not have the government interfering with it, except in those things where it needs help. So briefly put, we understand the concept of sub subsidiarity, um, which sheds some light on that question Hunt was asking earlier, should I love my state or should I love the federal more? Um, family. <laughs> Francisco, can you read this quote for us? The family is the original soul of social life. It is the natural society in which husband and wife are called to give themselves in love and in the gift of life, authority, stability, and a life of relationship within the family constitute the foundation of freedom, security, and fraternity within society. The family is the community in which, from childhood, one can learn moral values, being <clears throat> begin to honor God, and make good use of freedom. Family life is an in, in, initiation into life in society. Right the original cell of society. Where, when you look at the structure of society, where does it all start? The family. Um, so a state that does not recognize the family as precious, does not recognize the family as a thing it needs to honor as on one level distinct from it, not to be defined, manipulated, controlled by it, um, 
Where am I going with that? Anyway, I think you see what I was trying to say there. Yes. It is, yes, the, the society will deteriorate. So the famous line of John Paul II, as goes the family, so goes, so goes society. When the family disintegrates, society will disintegrate. When the family is healthy, society will be healthy. We're going to note in our next lecture how law therefore needs to support the family. Law needs to be enacted to support the common good. Um, let's continue with that. Hunter, would you mind reading a big block quote there? The political community has a duty. The political community has a duty to honor the family, to assist it, and to ensure especially the freedom to establish a family, have children, and bring them up in keeping with the family's own moral and religious convictions. The protection of stability of the marriage bond and the institution of the family, the freedom to profess one's faith, to hand it on, and to raise one's children in it with the necessary means and institutions, the right to private property, to free enterprise, to obtain work and housing, and the right to emigrate, in keeping with the country's institutions, the right to medical care, assistance for the aged and family benefits, the protection of security and health, especially with respect to dangers like drugs, pornography, alcoholism, etc., the freedom to form associations with other families, and so to have representation before civil authority. Okay, any lines there that leap out to us? In what sense? So, I don't know, just thinking about like prohibition. Is the government a right to, I don't know. Right. I think probably not. <coughs> but in terms of, because you can have, you can be virtuous in having a moderate amount of alcohol, but you can't. Something like pornography, there's no virtuous amount of pornography to have. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a state would be justified in banning all forms of pornography within society. Yeah, because there isn't a virtuous mean there. Right. And that somebody is always exploited in the creating of pornography. So it's not just the damage done to the viewer, but somebody was demeaned in the filming of that act, even if they chose to be demeaned in it. Um, you might note that whole section is dangers like drugs, pornography, and alcoholism. So somehow um, family needs to be protected from those things. Because that, that's the context here is family being protected. From. To obtain work and housing and the right to immigrate. Interesting there, yeah. Um, so that would seem, um, we might expect a Republican to just gloss past that, yeah. Um, now, to enable that doesn't mean the government provides it directly. Um, but if the government, if that is failing to be possible, the common good is not flourishing and the state has the role to flourish the common good. 
So somehow to enable that. Um, so like if someone's systematically denying a group housing in a given area, the government comes in and stops that, but doesn't like give them houses. Hmm. Well, the government could give them houses. That would be one way of doing it. I'm just saying it doesn't follow that the government is directly doing it. Sometimes the government directly doing it is a way of making it happen. Okay. Um, but that isn't the only way. Um, so the Republican cause of fostering free enterprise is one way of fostering jobs. Um, but that isn't the only way of creating jobs. We'll come on to private property later in the course, um, but it's linked on some level with the dignity of the person, that it is proper to the person to have responsibility for kind of a little patch of the world. So the common, the goods of creation are given to all humanity, but how does that get mediated in the particular by private ownership? To say it belongs to everyone kind of means it belongs to no one. So private ownership, the church teaches, is how those, that primordial gift to everybody is mediated, but private ownership is never an end in itself. It's a way of that common, um, that universal destination of human goods being mediated. We'll come on to that later in the course, but it's, it's a, a really important point. So the family cannot defend, cannot pr promote its own health if it doesn't have a house, uh, a salary. Um, so ownership is one of the ways the family flourishes, being able to own its things. But does it need to own it? I think of like an axe with the apostles they say like we they own all things in common, something like that. So it seems like flourishing is not the right Required. to private ownership doesn't seem necessary for flourishing in that sense. Like I can see all the practical implications, especially in a fallen world, why that would be necessary. But um, yeah. Could the distinction there be that it was voluntary poverty versus like if if you don't have a right to private property in a in a state, it's forced. So you might not have a call to something like, I think that the, the existence and act of the apostles is more like a monastic community than a communist government. And has never been held to by the church as a model for future ages to follow. So something about a very particular moment in, in the church's history where that was being done. You're saying, though, as a principle, that seems there would have been families there that didn't own things, but they did belong to that group that owned it. Um, so somebody needed to own something. Yeah. Um, the right to profess one's faith and the right to educate your children. So have we discussed yet in this course um, 
that marriage, and we'll do this later in the course, marriage is ordered to children, ordered to the education and raising of those children. Um, that includes the raising of them in a particular religion. You can't relate, raise a child in a vacuum of belief. Um, so it is the right but also the duty of parents to raise their children in a religious framework. Um, which religious framework, as a matter of human dignity, is the conscience of the parents? Um, but it would be a very odd parent who said, um, whether or not there's a God is so unimportant, I'm not going to tell my child. Because that actually is telling the child something about the importance of God, that actually God isn't important. God is so unimportant that whether or not you know he exists is irrelevant. Um, and on all kinds of levels, governments today we see interfering with parents on these questions, whether it's the LGBTQT plus agenda or um, other things, the government wanting to overstep the parents and tell the children something that the parents don't want the child to be told. The church is saying it's the parents, this, the political community needs to honor the family by allowing the parents to be making those decisions. Yeah. The comment that you made about how parents can't raise their children in a vacuum, it seems like there is still a religion there even without like the admission of God or just dismissing him because they're, they're living in a, in a religion of like materialism or sports or whatever going after something some good that that in itself is a religion right. so the claim to not religiously raise your child is itself a religion Okay, moving on, page seven, the international community, which is kind of taking our uh, state, federal, in a whole ultimate level, the international. So I say, numerous church documents highlight that man's nature as a social being includes not merely his family, town, and nation, but the whole human family as an international level. I go on, it should be noted, however, that the international community is not to be automatically identified with the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the G8, or the G20, or the G7, uh, the, you know, that they're all kinds of, what is the international community? Any one of those bodies isn't the international community. What's the G8, G20? The group of eight wealthiest nations of the world whose leaders meet together periodically to decide what everybody else should be doing. <laughs> um, so if you are from one of those poor countries that isn't part of the G8, um, you will hear from them a very different perspective of whether the G8 is a wonderful force for good in the world or whether it's just serving the G8. So the G20 then is the 20 most prosperous nations. Whether Russia gets to be part of the G8 or not happens at different moments of history. So I 
think the most recent gathering they've kind of been they're not in there now uh, whether they'll be back in whether China is in or out um, so a grouping of nations that have a common interest which on one level is a force for good or can be it can also be a force for self-serving so there's a risk that someone says the church says the international community um, therefore the G8 or the United Nations or um, Okay, Pope Benedict in Caritatis and Veritate. In the face of in the unrelenting growth of global interdependence, there's a strongly felt need, even in the midst of global recession, for a reform of the United Nations organization, and likewise of economic institutions and international finance, so that the concept of a family of nations can inquire real teeth. Um, Key problems. How do you balance subsidiarity with the international community? Um, then quoting Benedict XVI again, the principle of subsidiarity is particularly well suited to managing globalization and directing it towards authentic human development. In order not to produce a dangerous universal power of a tyrannical nature, the governance of globalization must be marked by subsidiarity. Now, how, I ask the rhetorical question, how to achieve the goal of the people's participation in large international bodies that are typically far removed from them? And further, I say the needs of poor countries must be considered in the international common good, even though such countries have little influence. In addition, poor countries are frequently ruled by dictators or unrepresentative governments. How can the needs of their people be heard if their leaders do not serve the common good of their own people? How can the rule of law be created at an international level when many countries do not have it at a national level? So there's a whole mess of issues there, um, but the church does have this concern for the universal, the international community and development, not just me, my town, my state, my nation. Lastly, page eight. Uh, so I asked you to read this in advance. So this was St. Thomas on monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Um, so the key thing I wanted you to read there is how democracy is not a new idea. So You've done it in your ancient philosophy and politics? Yes? Okay. Um, St. Thomas treats it at length. It is curious that even in St. Thomas's era, what he talks about seems, sounds very similar to a modern democracy, even though he wouldn't have witnessed that anywhere. Or I suppose he would have maybe at local levels, different types of participation but certainly no country in his era had a democratic structure at a national level. So we've covered a lot today. We've tried to summarize the church's social teaching, noting the ultimate end of society is the person, 
but the person is not an individual. He is communal. He has to support the common good, recognize that he is part of this thing called society. Um, that there are many individual subgroups of society. They need to be flourished. Uh, they need to, to fo be fostered. Um, so it's not just the, the common good of society and the individual. All those little groups, your um, Knights of Columbus, your, you know, all of those, that is what society is made of. Um, and that's what the government has to be fostering. So for your next lecture, I've not given you the notes, they are online already. There are two or three pages there that I've highlighted in the reading guide. I want you to read in advance so that you arrive at class having been through those points already. Um, we're going to look at some what I hope will be much more interesting specific examples that will be for your final paper of this course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.